Hi ladies, welcome to Women in the Word from wherever you're watching from. I am Shelly Davis. I'm part of the Women in the Word teaching team and I love being here sharing the truth of the scriptures with you today. Just a reminder for everyone that you can print your verses and outlines off your email if you're part of a small group. And if you're not part of a small group, you can always get the verses and outlines for today's lessons from our website, ccbcfamily.org. My youngest son has been a military pilot for 14 years. And what that means is he's gone from his family um, an awful lot. He's gone uh, on missions and trainings and deployments. And every time he leaves for more than just a week or two, there's a lot of preparation that he has to undergo. And of course, the military prepares him for whatever mission or deployment that he might be on. But there is much that he has to do to prepare his family for his absence as well. And the most important preparation that he has to make is to prepare his two young boys for him to be away for months. Um, he prepares them to be a help to their mom, hopefully. He prepares them to understand how the, he will communicate with them because sometimes he can email, sometimes he can call, and sometimes he can't do either of those. Uh, he also helps them understand how long he's going to be gone because his boys are young. So the concept of time, dad's going to be away for six months, doesn't really mean much for them. So the last time he was away, he did this cool thing. He took um, he was going to be gone for uh, at least six months, and he took a picture of himself holding both of his cute young boys, and he put it on his computer, and then he covered it with a camo pie chart graph. And then each and every day, that pie chart clicked off a little bit more of their picture so that his two little boys knew that when that whole picture was finally revealed, dad would be on his way home. It really was a great way to prepare all of them for the challenge that lay ahead of them. Now, as we continue on in our great story of Joshua today, we're going to see that our Heavenly Father also takes great pains to prepare His children as well for the challenges that lie ahead of them. The people of Israel have just crossed the Jordan River and taken the first step into conquering the land that He has given them. They have a lot of battles ahead of them, ladies. Uh, so open your Bibles to Joshua chapter 5 and let's look together how God prepares His children for the challenges and the battles that they have ahead of them. Look at uh, verse 1 with me in chapter 5. <clears throat> As soon as all the kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan to the west and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel." So last week when we studied with Lynn, we saw the miraculous crossing of the Jordan River at flood stage. It was a rushing, raging river. And as the priests entered the edge of the water carrying the Ark of the Covenant, 
The river literally stopped, forming a wall of water as far as 15 miles upstream. And it gave the Israelites, millions of them, dry passage from the east bank of the river to the west bank. Their enemies in Cana, the kings of the Amorites and the kings of the Canaanites, obviously have their own spies. They have their spies watching the millions of Israelites that are advancing into what they consider their territory. And the bad news that these spies report to the kings is that Israel didn't make rafts and cross that river. They didn't swim across. They didn't wait for a drought. The Israelites crossed by the miraculous power of the one true God. And it's an incredible miracle that accomplishes several things as God begins to prepare the Israelites for the battles that are coming. First, it reveals in a remarkable way his sovereign power his pure might as the one true God. It's obvious from this great miracle that he is the one true God. Nothing stands in his way. He is the God that controls heaven and earth and even raging rivers. Next, it paralyzes Israel's enemy with fear before the battles even start. Through this show of might and sovereign power, God is reminding all of the players here. He's reminding Israel and Israel's enemies the truth of who he is. His great power reminds his people, Israel, that whatever they face, any obstacle, whether it's a raging river or an enemy in battle, they face it with a powerful God that they can trust. They can trust in God's great power. They can trust in God's great power as they enter this country and face so many battles ahead. God reminded Joshua of that in, when they first began their journey back in Joshua chapter one. We've read this before. Look at Joshua 1, 9 on your verse sheet. Let me read it. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. God's great power goes with the nation of Israel wherever they go. And his great power reminds Israel's enemies of that same truth. It reminds them that whenever Israel marches into battle, Israel's God is with them and that's who they are really facing. Look at Isaiah 45, five. I am the Lord. There is no other besides me. There is no God. That is who Israel's enemies truly face. So God's first step in preparing Israel for the battles that lie ahead of them is to remind everyone in the fight. It reminds his people and he reminds their enemies that he is sovereign God. He is a powerful, all-powerful God, the one true God. And Israel can trust in his power and Israel's enemies should fear his power because only he is God. Okay, let's read a few more verses together. Look at uh, verse two in chapter five with me. 
At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gilbeth Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them all. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who came out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt perished because they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us a land flowing with milk and honey. So it was their children whom he raised up in their place that Joshua circumcised, for they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. Okay, so as commander of Israel's army, Joshua has to be a little bit surprised here that just as soon as they cross the river, the Lord's command is that he should stop all the men of Israel um, and circumcise them rather than launch into battle while the kings are paralyzed with fear. To a general, it would seem like a good time to be on the offense against your enemies. You've got them on the run. But God takes another step here to prepare Israel for the conquest of the land with his unusual command. Before they inhabit the land, they must submit to the right of circumcision. Now, circumcision was the outward sign of the covenant made between God and Abraham centuries before. We looked at that covenant actually together in week one. We turned to Genesis 12 and looked at the promise that God made Abraham for land and offspring and blessing. No one knows exactly why God chose circumcision as the symbol of his covenant with Abraham but it's likely that it has something to do with symbolizing a separation from immorality, a separation from sexual sins and a separation from the sins of the flesh. And those things would also reflect the spiritual symbolism of circumcision. Circumcision would be a constant reminder to God's people, Israel, that they were to lead holy lives, holy lives, honoring a holy, a holy God, cut off from the sins of the flesh, from um, sexual immorality. Look at what God says to Abraham in Genesis 17, right before he gives him the covenant, uh, the outward sign of the covenant uh, circumcision. Look at Genesis 17, 1 and 2. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me. Be blameless that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. God wants his people to lead holy, blameless, unblemished lives as they walk before him. A few verses later in Genesis 17, 9, God actually gives 
Abraham, that covenant of circumcision, that is the outward sign of that covenant between God and Abraham and his descendants. Look at Genesis 17, 9 with me. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant. You and your offspring after you throughout their generations, this is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. It shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And unfortunately, while they were in the wilderness, the Israelites, through their spiritual indifference and their flat-out disobedience, let circumcision, the outward sign of their covenant with God, lapse. The generation of men that were born in the wilderness were never circumcised. So before they go any further into the land, God wants the men of Israel to once again place themselves under the Abrahamic covenant through their obedience to his command of circumcision. And until they do what their fathers refused to do for them, They have no right to the covenant promise, to the blessing of the land that had been promised to Abraham. And that's exactly what they do. They not only take on that outward sign of circumcision as they cross over the Jordan River into the land, um, their obedience to God's command gives them a new start in their relationship with God as they step foot into the land that he is blessing them with. Look at Moses' words with me in Deuteronomy 10, right before they entered the promised land. Deuteronomy 10, 15 and 16 says, Yet the Lord set his heart in love on your fathers and chose their offspring after them. You above all peoples, as you are this day, circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn. You know, God is commanding the men of Israel to stop and be physically circumcised. But what God is really looking for here is heart change for his people, Israel. Moses calls it circumcision of the heart here. And that is where that layer of rebellion and selfishness and stubbornness um, that hardened the hearts of their parents in the wilderness is peeled off the hearts of their offspring through their obedience. Circumcision for the men of Israel restores and renews the blessings of that Abrahamic covenant and their obedience to the Lord as they enter the land of the promise shows their heart change. Circumcision of the flesh places them under the blessings of the covenant where circumcision of the heart through their obedience allows them the blessing of a relationship with the God that loves them. In order to fight and win all the battles that lay ahead of Israel, the Israelites are going to need to continue to keep their hearts circumcised through obedience, to obey their God who fights for them. Because without their obedience, their God is not going to continue 
their blessings. And we're going to see a little bit of that in the chapters to come. Look at uh, verse 8 with me. We're going to keep reading. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the reproach of Egypt from you. And so the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. Okay, so there are actually a couple of thoughts here about what God means by rolling away the reproach of Egypt. And one of them is, is that Israel's 430 years of captivity, of bondage in Egypt, their slavery was a black mark on Israel's history. And now that they had uh, renewed the covenant promise with God, they are free from that black mark. But there's another thought that also seems likely, uh, and that is that if God had destroyed Israel in the wilderness because of their disobedience, and honestly, he had plenty of reason to do that uh, more than once, then if he had done that, the Egyptians would have shouted to the world that Israel's God was not able to deliver them into the promised land, that Israel's God was a weak and ineffective God that actually didn't really care that much about Israel and had led them out into the desert to put them to death. But now as Israel enters the promised land through God's power and his might, it's evident that he has delivered them from Egypt and the bond of slavery. Egypt no longer has any grounds to ridicule either Israel or the one true God. The reproach of Egypt has finally been rolled away. Okay, read some more with me. Look at verse 10 in Joshua chapter 5. While the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land. And there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate the fruit of the land of Cana that year. So we see God uh, continues here to prepare Israel for those many battles that lie ahead of them. And he does that by reminding them that he is their deliverer. He's their deliverer. And he does that by having them celebrate the Passover feast for the first time in 39 years. And actually, this is only the third time that Israel has celebrated the Passover. The very first Passover feast was actually eaten the night that Israel left Egypt. The Passover feast marked a new era in Israel's history. On the night of the 10th and final plague during their captivity in Egypt, God instructed the Israelites to take an unblemished lamb to slaughter that lamb and place the blood on the top and the sides of the doorposts, of their doorposts. And then they were to eat that roasted lamb with bitter herbs and with unleavened bread, uh, dressed in their traveling clothes as they waited. At midnight that night, God's death angel passed over Egypt, killing every firstborn son. But the sons of the Israelites were spared because of the blood of the lamb on their doorposts. The death angel 
passed over Israel that night. And as the cries of the Egyptians were heard, as they mourned the loss of all their sons, the Pharaoh allowed the people to leave that night and escape that 430 years of captivity. And it was Passover, the Passover feast that God did then decreed to be a memorial feast to the Lord forever for his salvation, for his deliverance by the blood of the lamb. He was their deliverer. Look at Exodus 12, 14 with me, where God decrees that Passover celebration. Exodus 12, 14 says, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So the Passover is a memorial feast forever to the Lord as Israel's deliverer. Every single time Israel celebrates the Passover, it is symbolic of God's great power delivering them out of bondage in Egypt. Now, Israel's second Passover was actually celebrated a year after they left Egypt. It was celebrated in the desert of Sinai. But for the next 39 years, as Israel wandered in the wilderness, they didn't celebrate the Passover. And I wish I could tell you why. I read uh, several great scholars and theologians and no one really has a definitive reason why Israel did not celebrate Passover in the wilderness. But as we can see here in Joshua 5, God's timing is perfect because the Israelites crossed the Jordan River just in time to celebrate Passover on the 14th day of the first month of the Jewish calendar. And it was that 14th day that God decreed 40 years ago that Israel should always celebrate that memorial feast to the Lord. And since they had already obeyed his command of circumcision, they were qualified as part of God's covenant community now to eat the Passover meal and celebrate God's deliverance for only the third time in their history. Now, when God first decreed the Passover meal 40 years ago, he also decreed a week-long feast, a celebration that is called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And that communicates Israel's, uh, commemorates Israel's hasty departure from Egypt that night before their bread had a chance to rise. But for 40 years in the wilderness, not only did they not celebrate Passover, they also did not celebrate the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. And that was because they had no crops. They had no grain. There was no unleavened bread for them to celebrate with. Israel, for 40 years in the wilderness, had eaten the manna that God had provided for them each and every day. But now... The day after they celebrate the Passover, they're in the good land. The land that Moses had described for them as the land of wheat and barley, the land of vines and fig trees and pomegranates and olive trees. And on the day following their third Passover in the good land, they were finally able to use the grain and the wheat of the land to make unleavened bread. They have the blessing of eating the fruit of the land that they are in for the very first time 
and for the first time in 40 years, the manna ceases. I can imagine there were children with them that had only ever eaten manna, and here they're given the feast of the unleavened bread to eat the fruit of the land that God had blessed them with. Miraculously, for the first time, they can experience the bounty of his blessing as they eat the fruit of his land. So God prepares Israel for the battles that lay ahead by reminding them through the Passover celebration and the blessing of the fruit of the lamb that he alone is their deliverer. He delivered them from slavery, from 430 years of bondage, and he delivered them through 40 years in the wilderness. There was not one day they went without food because of his deliverance, um, his provision. And now he's delivered them into the land that he promised them centuries before. The fruit of the land that they are now eating is only a taste of his blessings that are to come. They celebrate God's deliverance with that taste of God's goodness in their mouth. Let's read again. Let's read verses 13 through 15 together. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said to him, are you for us or or for our adversaries? And he said, no, but I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshiped and said to him, what does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, take off your sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. So General Joshua, the commander of Israel's army, is out scouting um, Jericho, which is the battle that lies ahead of them. And he's probably um, understands as he looks at the town of Jericho that this is going to be his greatest test as Israel's commander. Jericho is an extremely fortified city. It has high, thick walls surrounding the entire city. It has impenetrable gates and entrances. And the Israelites are only armed with simple weapons. They only have swords and spears and bows and arrows. They don't have the battering rams or the catapults that it would take to breach those walls and those entrances. And now, since they had crossed the Jordan River, they had to move forward. They had to move forward and take Jericho. There was no way to retreat. That raging flood stage river was at their backs. There was nowhere for them to go. And so as Joshua stands there considering, looking at Jericho and considering his options, a man steps into his view. Uh, He has a drawn sword in his hand. Now it's obvious at first that Joshua doesn't recognize that this is no ordinary man. And he asks him um, a couple of great questions. He says, are you with us or are you against us? And I imagine that um, Joshua thinks, hey, if you were really a friend, why are you out here facing me with your sword drawn? And Joshua as a warrior and commander is probably on pretty high alert thinking he's 
going to have to grapple with this man for the sword. Um, but the response he gets to his question has to be surprising. It's not what he expects. This is no ordinary soldier confronting Joshua. He replies that he's the commander of the Lord's army. And the visitor's words, much like Jesus's words to the disciples on the road to Emmaus, bring a startling revelation. This is not an earthly man, but a heavenly being. And he falls down on his face and he begins worshiping him. And he even calls him my Lord. Now, it seems likely based on the response that Joshua receives from his heavenly visitor here after he falls down and worships that this is not an angel. This is not Michael or Gabriel calling themselves um, head of the Lord's hosts. Um, And we can actually come to that conclusion partly because of our study that we did together last spring in Revelation. If you did that with us, then you'll recall that in Revelation chapter 19, John encounters an angelic being. And when he falls down on his face to worship this angel, the angel says to him, Don't do that. Worship God alone, not me. I am a fellow servant. But the response we see here from Joshua's heavenly visitor actually instead reminds us of what the Lord God said to Moses from the burning bush. Look at Exodus 3, 5 and 6. And then he said, do not come near, take off your sandals, take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. You know, Joshua's visitor here uses very similar language to those words that Yahweh God spoke to Moses when he said, take off your sandals, the place you were standing is holy. This is a powerful moment of revelation for Joshua. It opens his eyes to the fact that he is in the presence of the same God who called Moses. Now, his visitor identifies himself as the commander of the Lord's army, which tells us that this theophany, this appearance of God is not God the Father, but God the Son. This is the pre-incarnate Christ with Joshua holding a sword. Now, it's interesting to me that their interaction here is pretty brief, or at least what's recorded here is brief. There are not a lot of words spoken. It's not a long conversation, but just the Lord's appearance with his sword, his words, I am the commander of the Lord's army, and now I have come, speaks volumes to Joshua. Although Joshua is the human commander of Israel's army, and he understands that, He also knows from the Lord's presence here with a drawn sword that the Lord himself, the Lord himself is truly the one who fights all of Israel's battles. He has, it is the Lord who has brought them out of Egypt and he is the one that is going to give them victory in each battle they face. It is the Lord's plan. It is the Lord's power. It is the Lord's fight. And it is his victory. 
Joshua's mentor, Moses, had that personal encounter with God at the burning bush and God's presence and his power led them out of Egypt. Now Joshua has an encounter with the pre-incarnate Christ who's going to lead Israel into the land through victory in every battle that they face. I can only imagine the difference in Joshua's emotions after he encounters the commander of the Lord's army. Um, he had to have now had great peace, great confidence, great encouragement, and great joy at having been in the presence of the commander of the Lord's army, the pre-incarnate Christ. Now, as he looks over the walls of Jericho, he doesn't see an impossible task. What he sees is a task that with God, nothing is impossible. I think he has to be remembering here that same promise God gave him in Joshua 1.9. Let's read it again. Have I not commanded you, be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. The commander of the Lord's army, the pre-incarnate Christ, has just made that promise very real for Joshua, very real. Now we see that God has prepared Israel for the battles um, ahead, the intense battles. By first, he starts out here by reminding them of his power as they cross that Jordan River uh, by his power alone. And he ends here in chapter five, their preparation by reminding them of his constant presence wherever they go. Um, the truths we see here in chapter five are not just meant for Israel's battle alone. The truths that we see here in chapter five, I believe are timeless truths that prepare us for life's battles as well. This chapter actually gives us four great ways that we can be battle ready because ladies, I know all of you know that there are battles we each have to fight in this life. So the first, uh, truth I think that we see from chapter five is that we must trust in God's power. We must trust in God's power if we are going to fight and win God's battles. God's display of power as Israel crossed the Jordan River is a true reminder for all of us that nothing is impossible with God. Nothing is impossible with God, not even the Jordan River at flood stage. If God wants us to cross a river, if that's his plan for our life, and we all have those symbolic raging rivers in our lives that block the path that we feel like we are supposed to be on. If God wants us to cross that river, he can use his power to get us across. We can trust in God's power. And if trusting in God's power is difficult for you in the midst of some sort of battle or um, hardship, obstacle in your life, like it's sometimes difficult for me, there are some great ways that we can grow our trust in the Lord. Um, one way I think is that we need to journal and write down answered prayers, big and small, big and small. When God's power has an answer prayer in your life or the life of someone you've been praying for, um, write it down, 
so you don't forget it. And you can go back and look at it and encourage your own trust in God's power. Because sadly, we forget those everyday miracles that are happening all around us. Um, You can also grow your trust in an all-powerful God by reading and meditating on the scriptures. It's something that has helped me time and time again when I've faced a difficult situation in life. Um, Read and meditate on the scripture passages that describe God's infinite power. Uh, It will grow your trust to read of the creation story again. When you read and really contemplate that the God, our God that we're calling on in prayer um, created the world in six days, it grows your confidence and trust in his power. Another place that always encourages me is go to Job chapter 38 and 39, because that's God himself describing his infinite power to Job, who needs to hear that. It will grow your trust in God's power in your life. And then um, read and meditate and look at Jesus's miracles in the New Testament. Jesus did turn water to wine. He did heal diseases that were thought to be unhealable. And he did raise people from the dead. Um, He is a powerful God that we can all trust. So prepare yourselves for the obstacles you're going to face in life by believing the truth that nothing is impossible with God. Trust in God's power. The uh, next step in our being battle ready, I believe, is that we see here in chapter five is obedience to his commands. Israel's obedience had caught, disobedience had cost them so much. It had cost them so much. Israel's disobedience had cost them 40 years of their life just wandering in the wilderness. Israel's disobedience had cost a generation of their people the chance to enter the land that God wanted to bless them with. And disobedience in our life costs us as well, costs us as well. All God really wanted for the Israelites and for us is our obedience, our obedience. And, you know, um, when we peel off that hardened layer of our hearts, that hardened layer of rebellion and selfishness and stubbornness, and we do this, ladies, by honest confession and humble repentance, when we do that, then we can walk in obedience to his commands. Um, Just like Israel, obedience sets us on a path of a deep and personal relationship with our God, a relationship that results in his blessings, a relationship that gives us his victories in any battle that we face. When we obey his commands, We're always a winner, no matter what the battle looks like. Now, the third step that we see here in chapter five in our battle-ready plan is celebration. Celebration as they entered the promised land, Israel stopped and celebrated God's deliverance from slavery in Egypt with the Passover. And you know, we are also a people who've been in slavery all our lives. We're not in slavery or in bondage to Egypt, but we all have been in slavery to sin and to the penalty of sin, which is death. 
It is our Lord Jesus who is our deliverer from our slavery to sin and the penalty of death in our lives. It's a battle we no longer have to even fight because of our Lord Jesus. He has won that battle over sin and over death. And if you're hearing this today and you have never accepted our Lord Jesus as your deliverer, as your savior in that battle over sin and death, I would just encourage you to really consider that, pray about it and do that today. Talk with your small group leader or someone in your small group. They can walk you through that. It's really pretty simple. And honestly, you can just sit down and talk to Jesus himself. His gift of salvation is free. He hears you. He hears you. Look at Romans 10, 9 on your verse sheet. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then that battle against sin and death in your life has been won. Now, whether you do that today or you've been a believer for um, lots of years, we all need to celebrate Jesus as our deliverer. We should celebrate it every week with other believers in worship. We should celebrate it by proclaiming to the world through baptism that Jesus is our Lord and Savior. We celebrate our salvation whenever we take the Lord's Supper together and certainly our holidays of Christmas and Easter should be amazing celebrations of our Lord as our deliverer. Jesus is our deliverer from sin and from death and celebrating that is one of those things that really gives us the grit that we need to face life's battles. And the final step in being battle ready that we see in chapter five is we should depend on God's presence each and every day. God is with us no matter what our day looks like, no matter if it's a big fight or a little fight. You know, it's obvious as we study Joshua together that God wanted Joshua to know that he was present with him always. He was present with him always. He says that we've read it twice today already in chapter one. And then right here in chapter five, he shows up in visible form with a sword drawn and God is with us as well. He's not only our constant presence, but we need to recognize that he's not just a casual bystander in our lives either. You know, if he was just a casual bystander in our lives, he would have shown up in front of Joshua with a chair. He would have just shown up with a chair and just sat there and watched to see what happened in the battle of Jericho. Um, instead, he showed up with a sword ready to be present and with Joshua and the people of Israel. We can depend on God's presence to fight with us in all of life's battles. Look at Deuteronomy 24. For the Lord your God is he who goes with you to fight for you against your enemies to give you the victory. You know, Israel still has many significant battles ahead of them. We're going to study them together in the weeks to come. But God has prepared them for what lies ahead. And you know, when we trust him, we obey him, we celebrate him. And when we depend on him, we're going to be prepared for any battle that lies ahead of us as well. Pray with me. 
Lord, thank you. Thank you for those words of truth and encouragement. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to see how you walked beside Israel each and every step of the way, how you loved them, how you encouraged them. Father, I, um, I just thank you and pray that we will be women who by your grace and mercy learn to trust you in all circumstances, learn to obey your commands, learn to celebrate the free gift of salvation that we have and who learn to recognize your presence in our lives and depend on you. We thank you for all of those things. I thank you for these women that are watching and studying today. And I pray these in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.